in this 157th episode entitled Winter Begins, Lucky Southern Hemispheres. We have questions on breathing, fitness, uh, the JBST white paper, FTP, mince pies, Ooh. polarized training, uh, info about Shockbox, some interesting research, what we've been up to for the past about six weeks, little updates. Welcome to the 10th year of the Coach Dobia Multisport podcast for triathletes, duathletes, sportive riders, road racers, time trialists, runners, mountain bikers and fitness enthusiasts. Whatever your distance and whatever your event, this podcast aims to make you smarter and faster. We are supported by Nopin suppliers of club, custom and aero clothing for triathlon and cycling, all made in Devon. Innovators of the Speed Pocket, now in two versions, retrofitted to skin suits, and also the Speed Belt for triathlon and duathlon. Visit nopins.com. Also supported by southfortracing.co.uk for all your biking needs with great brands such as Continental, Garmin, Powerbar, Infocrank, Park Tools, Beat It, Scott, I'm looking around the room, Fox, and everything from A to Z. Visit southfortracing.co.uk. I'm Coach Dobeer, and once again, I'm joined by, yeah, putting your hand up doesn't help, Crocker, by Confucius Crocker of Southfoot Racing in Southfoot Racing. How are you? Very well. Very, Very well. well. Thank you, Joseph. Um, as, Joseph? Oh, as, that's rather formal. As the listeners can tell, um, I have um, adapted a more gravelly... Um, so have I. Yeah. Tone. Yes. Uh, and this is merely just to charm the listeners. Ah, yes. Yeah. Mine's Sorry. just using my voice too much. And the, the, <laughs> the, the very back end of a cold two weeks ago and that sense that you never seem to be quiet for long enough for your throat to survive. Anyway, it seems a very, very, very long time ago. But uh, did you watch any of the Kona Ironman? I did catch very, very small snippets um, only to watch who had won the gents and the ladies. The gents. The gents and the ladies <laughs> yes. um, uh, events. Yeah. Uh, and I did have a quick peek, uh, peek at the um, at the dates, um, um, sorry, the times um, of some of the guys that I know that were, were taking part right, as well. Right, right. What an awesome race by uh, Patrick uh, Langer. Uh, course record 801, so close to breaking eight hours. And phenomenal run. I mean, that was just something textbook. Just absolutely brilliant. Um, first sub 240 just it was by a second wasn't it technically yeah it's by a second um, there was a you know few people that didn't produce the goods a few people that were just off the podium or were or were racing it was very good to see but it's it's that time change thing where you're just thinking oh okay I just stay up to one o'clock and then you think I can't go any uh, you know what I'll go to bed now and I'll wake up in the morning and see what the end result was um, Danielle Reef a three time winner but the first podium for UK athlete David uh, McNamee in 8.07. I mean, that's phenomenal. That's that's a super fast time. And uh, he beat Spencer Smith's, uh, up to that point, best ever 
Kona performance, which was fifth. And then we get Lucy Charles, who, you know, first time at Kona, goes sub nine and is second. Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty, what, what a pretty stunning, yeah, um, yeah. pretty stunning performance. Um, so, yeah, that seems ages ago, and it probably was ages ago, actually. We've, we've had a bit of a, I suppose, an uninterrupted period, haven't we, for our... Uh, our podcast recording we've been letting uh, time fly and been doing things yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <coughs> i mean it seems it seems to be that it's been uh, for, for joe and myself just getting one text message to another um between us saying what about today what about tomorrow can we do it now can we can we do it later and of course it's, yeah well i can do tuesdays i can do thursdays oh i can't do thursday so it, i think it's been the best part of almost three or four weeks of us kind of toing and froing with um different dates um in text messages just trying to um trying to get something on paper but more to the point is it just gives us the longer it, it takes for us to get together the more info and more questions we have yes and we've got i think uh, i totally i think we've got nine uh questions today uh i'm just back from having been up uh in london at sigma sport with uh alistair and johnny brownlee and as part of that there was a turbo training session beforehand with a couple of uh, volunteers just to take people through the idea of how to warm up using uh, a benchmark and um, also talking about the concepts of max test though not taking them through a max test both of those pdfs are now available at the bottom of coachjoebeer.com so if you go there there's a couple of pdfs if you ever wanted to uh, test you and a friend in a max test or to look at how to use the early part of a indoor turbo session to benchmark where your fitness is those are there download them and uh, and use them and the only other thing before i wanted to crack on with the questions was to say um there is now a new uh, triathlon camp that i'm involved with in uh, mallorca at the rafa nadal center uh, it's available information wise via psychology.co.uk and that's spelled c-y-c o-l-o-g-y so it's psychology and that's a, a 10 place maximum amount of people it's an amazing facility it's just a superb level um, of, uh, of of attention to detail from you know pick up at airport to everything is very very specific to give people that really kind of pro level feel of attention and of uh, of, of detail to uh, getting on with having a, a great training camp you know a wonderful uh, facility with beautiful weather with beautiful weather absolutely absolutely so let's crack on with the first question i reckon um this was from chris kidd it came via a tweet and he said hi joe and crocker um, when running or riding uphill are you better trying to maintain deeper breaths or panting love the podcast chris um, and it was quite interesting because the, the thought about the whole nature of breathing is that lots of people don't really think about it because it just goes on, doesn't it? You don't, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's you kind of got to happen naturally, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. really? But actually to concentrate on your breathing process can mean that you can not only breathe deeper and therefore get a lot more out of the process of breathing but also you can actually concentrate on exhaling and actually pushing the carbon dioxide off the lungs and therefore reducing 
the pressure to feel like you need to breathe. So it's quite ironic that if you take the scenario of, say, swimming, if you kept holding your breath and were swimming maybe every, uh, let's say you were only breathing every fourth stroke and you started to build up carbon dioxide, what you'd notice if you held your breath was that there was the need to take a really big first exhale and then take an inhale. If you're trickling and sometimes a little bit more forcefully blowing off the carbon dioxide, what you notice is it's easier then to breathe in. So the point of actually Chris's question isn't as, uh, as, as silly as it sounds. If you pant, which actually dogs pant, that's how they get rid of heat. They you know, effectively uh, blow the heat off through their, their breathing process. But if you take nice deeper breaths, you will find that you can control your heart rate better. If you just end up hyperventilating, so rather than it being panting, you're hyperventilating, you're kind of taking very short, sharp breaths. The thing is, is that very quick in and out means you haven't got time to really effectively let the oxygen cross over in the lungs. If you take deeper breaths, it's in there for longer and then you can exhale. So next time you're doing any kind of session, concentrate on, on big in-breaths, but also concentrate on blowing the carbon dioxide off the chest. And this can happen not only at steady state levels, if you're doing maybe a, mid a midwinter uh, duathlon, a 5K, maybe even doing you know, a time trial in the pool. If you do the exhalation process and really blow the carbon dioxide off, what you notice is your breathing can actually calm down. When people start literally, you think, actually, you're not spending enough time with that oxygen or that air rather in your lungs to let the oxygen transfer into the blood before actually you're, you're whispering it back out of the lungs. So to take Deeper, more controlled breathing is a better way of keeping things under control. Well, we, we mentioned that this was many, many seasons ago. We were chatting about it. When, when you're on a turbo trainer, you instead of breathing from your chest, you breathe from your stomach, your belly breathe yeah, pretty yeah. much. And what's interesting with that is if you look at your heart rate whilst you chest breathe and then go to a belly breathe, you notice that your heart rate drops off. Yeah. You know, it drops by maybe five or six beats, you know, just for the for the um, prolonged bit that you're doing the um, you're doing the belly breathe for. Yeah. So sometimes, yeah, you notice that it does kind of your, your heart rate does drop down yeah. a little bit. Like yeah. I said, only five or six beats, but it's sometimes it's enough if you're going quite hard just to catch your breath a little bit and give, give yeah. you a bit of a, a respite as it would be. Then Some research that was done on... Um, I don't know whether I'd mentioned it in a previous podcast. I've definitely mentioned it in conversations with people that there was some research done on a, on a mouth guard. When they actually used various types of mouth guard, the breathing was at a certain level and the oxygen um, usage was, um, was at a certain level. When they taped the people's mouths over, therefore they had to take much more deliberate breathing, the frequency of breathing dropped, the efficiency of the breathing improved, and although the heart rate didn't change because they were working at a level where they couldn't bring the heart rate down anymore, but they could be better at using the oxygen, at which point they're then actually just saving energy by not over 
kind of effectively over breathing through the open your mouth and start panting. So where possible, you want to try and engage. You often see people, so, you know, they're, they're, they don't look like they're always literally mouth open gasping. Often they, they look they look quite calm and they can sometimes still be, at, you know, well into zone two, actually nose breathing and taking really, really purposeful in-breaths and then blowing outwards. If you're at lower intensity, you probably don't even notice that this happens. But when you do a, a progressive effort, uh, let's say um, on a turbo trainer or on a treadmill and you take it up bit by bit, what you notice is there's this critical jump of heart rate that happens probably for most people in about the 120s where suddenly the aerobic system kicks in. And what you notice is the breathing and everything suddenly feels like it's actually engaging. And at that point, you do have to start thinking about breathing. But it's not, it's not a... Um, it's not a silly question. I think it's quite a good one to say, don't ignore breathing. Don't let it get out of control and then start to panic. And certainly think about big brelly breaths, as you were saying on the turbo, you know, taking, taking it in. And even at high intensity, doing that and then going, you can find everything calms down. When people, uh, as he called it, panting, but I call it hyperventilating. When they're literally, you know, you see them doing, I don't know, a 5K, a 10K, and they're going... <laughs> Think that's too fast. You are you are taking that 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 um, uh, I can't think what the abbreviation is. Uh, FR frequency of respiration, the breathing rate, and you can start going up to such a high frequency of breathing is that now you're not actually getting very good oxygen transfer. And as that gets worse, you start doing it more. So think about your breathing because it's not as automatic as it sounds. No, he's a funny one, and everybody now will be going. Oh, yeah, I remember. Or, or be oh, getting the big, uh, big breaths in. That's a good question. I like that one. Yeah. Next one is from Darren King. And he says, Hi, Joe Martin. Big thanks for the insightful podcast. But please try to at least pretend that we can all make huge improvements instead of we are what we are born with. Okay, and I'll come back to that in a minute. My question kind of relates to the point above. You guys and many others often use the term engine. My question is, how do you determine what engine you have? And are there any relatively simple tests that you can do to determine what engine you have? I.e., can I do a self-test and know that I will never be good at iron distance events, but great at sprint distance races? Keep up the good work. Cheers, Darren. Well, I think engine is, is a, yeah, it's a generalised term, which if you take parallels between different sports, and I had a conversation with an Ironman athlete that I coach earlier today and he uses power for running as well as for biking and we're only just beginning to sort of integrate that data into his other um his other sort of metrics he was saying yeah, yeah i'm doing you know i'm doing zone one i'm at 8 30 mile in and uh and it's giving me a number of about 200 watts and i said well yeah 8 30 miling that's seven miles an hour you're going to take about 110 calories an hour, sorry, a mile. So if you're running at seven miles an hour and each mile takes you 100, 110 calories, then you're, you're using roughly 770 to 800 calories an hour. Funnily enough, 800 calories an hour is 200 watts. So all these numbers of somebody's engine do actually correlate. And I think though there might be slightly different strengths between the sports, 
a ramp test, as per the max test that's the uh, PDF on the website, if you've got a power system, and let's, let's make it a fairly accurate one, not something that might be generating just random numbers, if you do a power test, uh, yes, you can, you can actually um, express that in terms of per kilogram, because some smaller individuals might have better numbers because they might put out 360 watts at max, but if they're only 60 kilos, then they've got six watts a kilo, which is pretty hefty. <coughs> Excuse me. And once you know that engine, that wattage or that run speed actually relates to a certain VO2. And lots of people want to get VO2 max tested, and I kind of get why. But if you know the right tests to do, i.e. a simple indoor max test on a bike, you can work out what that VO2 would mean. You can therefore say, well, this is what you've got in terms of engine. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say going back to, um, you know, you sort of say earlier on in your question, um, Darren, about um, try to pretend that we can all make huge improvements instead of we are we're born with. I'd argue very, very firmly that even what you are born with, most people totally get it wrong how to develop their physical capacity because what they say is oh i'm not fast enough but i'll push myself to be faster instead of saying i've got to develop my skills i've got to work out what my strengths and weaknesses are do i suffer from you know picking up too many injuries too many colds too many um big weeks followed by crash weeks so most people that I would say I improve, I'm not doing anything to their genes, I can't do anything about that, but what I can do is stop them making their own tripwires and stop them saying, oh, I'm always injured, how, how can you make me quicker? Well, firstly, start training correctly so you don't get injured and straight away you're going to be better. So there are a lot more people, I would argue, that you have actually got a solid enough engine, but what you've got to do is correctly train. And what that engine is shouldn't be what's the word it shouldn't be seen as deterministic i think there's lots of people with quite solid numbers that if we can make the most out of what they do how they eat um keep them balanced we're not on about people giving up the whole lifestyle just to try and see if they can you know qualify for an age group or get around a uh, etap de tour we're on about being realistically um you know having spoken about uh, the, the brownies you know these guys started at six and eight years of age so by the time they were 16 they were already doing the the level of training that not many people listening to this podcast will be doing on a weekly basis if you're an age grouper and you're trying to improve i would say that you know a self-test there's there's loads of them and we can certainly talk about um i suppose potentially putting together a you know a pdf of this is the test you can do you can do a um uh, what's called a Cooper test, a 12-minute test around the track. You can do a max test on a bike or with somebody that will take you through a... Um, somebody will take you through like a max test perhaps on a watt bike. And once you know those numbers, it's what you do with them. The fact that you might have less than your mate or more than, more than somebody that also did the test actually is always going to be the fact. There is a non-socialist part to sport that says we are all completely different but there are so many people who actually don't 
end up getting the most from what they're already, if you like, given because they break themselves or they try and train at somebody else's level only to find that it, it you know, it, it, it hits them for six. So engine, I think you could, you could define in various ways. It could be maximum watts in one minute. It could be, you know, how far can you get in 12 minutes on a run test? It could be what your, um, uh, you know, uh, 10 minute TT test is in the pool. And those things will probably relate to one another very tightly. So I could work out because I knew this particular athlete's like um, ability on the bike, I could work out what run pace he could do because we knew his weight, we knew how many watts he could put out. So you can, it all, to me, it's just a series of numbers. So if somebody says I can do this on the bike, they're going to say, well, it should be possible, therefore, for you to do this on the run. The difference with swimming is that if you are very inefficient, you might have engine X, but you could be using, you know, 20% of that engine just to actually fight drag, whereas somebody else that's super effective could be making more use of that energy and going faster. So what, a question for you then, Joe, is are engine and ability the same thing or are they different, do you think? Are we talking about No, no, about I, think, I think they're different. I think engine is, is what you've got, is effectively your you know, your aerobic ability, albeit you need to be, you don't always need to be super trained to say, oh, when I'm trained, I've got X. If somebody's done a small amount of training, which this guy already, you know, he is training because you can work it out from what he's saying, but that's just your engine. Your ability is taking that and turning it into effective training. It's sometimes taking your you know, your budget and spending it wisely so that you spend on on kit and nutrition to make sure you make the most of that engine. But the engine, there are plenty of people, they might not be listening to this now because they've, they've uh, crashed and burned, but there's plenty of people that on paper should have done better than what they did, but their ability to rein themselves in and to be smart is unfortunately poor. And the best thing about knowing the right numbers for your body is that you will get the best out of whatever you can get and that's the that's the key really we can't all be the best but you can and and some people will break themselves in that process thinking no 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 no, I'm, i will i will i'm sorry but there are certain people that have got the you know the talent a long period of um, gestation in training and they get to a point where They've just got it. And no matter who says, I'm going to be the best, I'm sorry, but there's certain credentials you've got to have for that to come together. However, there are far more people that I would say, when I see somebody's training and they, they've they self-coached, they're often getting it wrong. And you tweak the slightest of things and they start going better. They start getting less injured. They start enjoying it more. And that's then what I would say is their ability is starting to make the most of their engine. So, like Darren mentions, there, there's, there's, are are there certain tests, uh, excuse me, certain tests that they could do to determine size of engine? I know with with cycling, especially, is is um, you know, there's a there's a parameter of tests that you can do over. Most of them are time based, so you know you can do twenty minute test. You can do a but a ramp test is better because a twenty yes. minute test has a skill factor of learning how to pace yourself. Pace yourself. That's the thing. Whereas when you do a ramp test and you start at hundred watts. And Darren, this PDF is on uh, coachjoebeer.com at the bottom. You can do it with somebody else that's on a power system. Um, you sort of, you know, one tests the other and you, you, you take it through the protocol. 
there is no pacing. You've just got to attain the next 20 watts every minute. And you just keep going up and up and up to a point where you blow up. And that's, uh, that's, that's kind of just, you go till you pop. And there's very few people, very few, that get that wrong and then say, no, 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 that's not really me. Most... I've already written it on the back of the piece of paper, and when they finish it, I show them it. They go, "Oh right, so why, why, why didn't you tell me that in the first <laughs> yeah, place?" Didn't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cheers. And it's like, well, you, you know, some people can surprise me, but no, you know, knowing somebody's history, I had one chap who, you know, he'd been a very high level runner. We knew he he could he he should get you know above four hundred, and he did the test, and it and it failed. And then we worked out that it was not only the power system was was wrong, but um, he was just in the wrong place when he did it. Repeated the test, got over four hundred, and then it started to make sense. But it wasn't like everyone that does three sixty says, no, 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 I can do four sixty, and they come back and do it. It's it it defines that number, and it's why the likes of British Cycling and other talent squads go around with bikes, even you know, to sort of, you know, primary schools and other sports and get somebody to do a certain number of tests and then go, bingo, you've got it. Or, okay, thanks, yeah, keep going, but you're not going to join our sport because you haven't got the you haven't got the minerals, yeah. as Crocker says. Yeah. And and it's not to be, you know, it's not to be limiting somebody. There's people that have got quite average levels, but what they do is they make every last bit of their swim skill by getting in touch with a you know very good swim group and swim skill um, coordinator. They have a great bike set up aerodynamically with low rolling resistance, everything tuned, great kit, blah, blah, blah. And when it comes to racing, they're as uh, fit as a butcher's dog and they run well off the bike. And with quite average abilities, they can do quite good things. So I don't think we have to be defeatist about this because... Ultimately, it's how much do you want to take your standard engine and start to do stuff with it? Because I think it's quite important that you don't just sort of think, oh, I've done a match test. Somebody told me I didn't really have what it takes. And then people get all defeatist about it. It's like, look, if you really, really start to maximise nutrition and training and kit you can make big inroads lots of people you know we're talking big chunks of time and whether that's iron distance or sprint as you put in your question down that really depends on work back from the distance what do you want to try and be good at and then hone in the physiological uh, necessities to get good at that and not everyone wants to go to iron distance. Not everyone's got the the real high intensity capacity to do well at, at sprint. But you can be a jack of several trades. The you know the brownies can be good at very short distances of less than an hour, up to you know doing four hours for half Ironman. And many other elite sports people have that range of abilities. But they train specifically to make sure that they're ready for that distance. So you don't have to be one or the other. Ironman athletes aren't just people that are slow that go longer. They've been pretty good at short distance, but they just suddenly get the bug for wanting to go longer and almost go into the place where there's a lot more mental side to how good you can do at half and, and full Ironman. Because physiologically, there's lots of people that should be able to run that run faster, but they've not got the ability to pace themselves on the bike. 
they've not been practicing their nutrition correctly and when it comes to the hardship of absolutely nailing themselves on the run they crack even though on paper they should be able to do it so it's not to say there's people with extra special abilities but you can't be limiting your ability by sort of saying well i don't know that i've got the engine of other people i could probably write a list and put it in front of crocker and he would be nodding people that i could bring to mind that he knows that i know that have already you know cracked themselves and they've not even got to their 30s and their body's already broken down because they haven't had the ability to pace themselves and to learn their lessons along the way and i think the whole point of endurance sport is to learn and to work out how to if you like, allow your body to mature through various ages. And with that comes the real beauty of being able to do stuff that, you know, you couldn't do five years earlier, but you've taught and you've learnt and you've adapted what you do to become better at whatever part of the triathlon sphere you want to be. Good. That's a good question. Good, eh? good question, Darren. Um, sorry, sorry if we've we've upset people about engine size. <laughs> we do apologise. Um, the next question is from Stephen, and the question is: Is it possible, please, to get a link from one of the webs? Uh, apparently, one of the websites doesn't work uh, for the 2016 white paper mentioned on the Cycling Time Trial Podcast number 92. As I'm really interested to read what Joe mentioned. Um, so that's so what we've spoken about before. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's on the, let's think off the top of my head. That is go to the advice page and click on the podcast. And that says about this podcast and it says... It's number 92. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's not... Yeah, that was number 92 time trial podcast. Right. So that's the cycling time trial podcast that's um, that's done, um, starts in the US effectively. But the white paper is on my website, coachedobeer.com go to the advice page and then click on the podcast and that gives just info about the podcast some of the uh, prior episodes and it says at the bottom of that page um, 2017 white paper and you can click on that um, at some point I'll put it back on the home page but there's other things at the moment that are a slightly higher priority but it's going to be updated in early 2018 but it's about looking at Effectively, the research on endurance sports, just taking some, you know, some uh, experiences and, and research to say, right, what is the model of how do we train? Because lots of people don't really have a model. They just, you know, accumulate more hours than the week before or try and go faster than what they did. And hey, that's how they do it. They don't look at trying to work out the proportions of effort, trying to work out what nutrition and equipment and what lessons has sports science taught us, which then allow us to say, this is probably the best way to do things. So it's um, it's a few pages, the white paper. It's it's not meant to be, um, uh, you know, the be all and end all, but it is, I think, quite, because I've spent time doing it and I've used, if you like, various talks to refine the paper. Then I added a bit more and then I put it up on the, uh, up on the podcast page and... Um, at some point, that'll be on the homepage. Right. So, and that's just about how how to train or how 
the layout of training has changed or um it's it's effectively what what is the justification for various types of training and various oh, right, types right. of nutrition what is the, you know what is the research and what what does the uh what does the experience of the last you know couple of decades of uh, of research and of uh not not just anecdote not oh i know somebody that did x <laughs> right, but yeah. actually you know if we take retrospective multiple elite athlete and um, multiple research studies what does it say is the best way to train so next and we're already on to number four is simon gill and this is um actually another triathlon question and he says um hi joe i'll add in crock as well because he does mean you as well and right. he does they all fine. do they all do don't it's fine. Don't, no, don't worry thanks simon yeah <laughs> um I've, oh, oh this, this is funny i didn't even realize this was in this order i've read your white paper and listened to loads of podcasts and i'm now familiar and interested in the stats of how much work should be done in zone one according to your heart rate guide for someone though who trains with a power meter on the bike and usually pace running please could you help me understand how this translates what sort of percentage of FTP are we talking about on the bike? And if I know my FTP pace running, uh, can I use that to understand where my training pace should be? Okay, so, first of all, FTP. FTP, okay, FTP. Let's get this clear. Um, functional threshold power. So, in theory, that is your one hour power, okay? Uh, it's defined also at or around so, four millimoles of lactate if you were measuring somebody's lactate at sorry, that point Joseph. in time. Um, so <coughs> for the hour, it is your average... Your average power, if yeah. you were to you know, set off and correctly pace a whole hour's worth of riding at the maximum sustainable effort. It's often found out by people doing a 20-minute test and then using a, a derivative of this, normally you know, 0.95 of a 20 minute test. Um, I'm not gonna say it's a false messiah, it's just a way of measuring something, okay? It's, it's saying, look, this is what you can do for an hour, okay? Um, it's become very popular, why don't we measure something of, this is what you can do for two hours, okay? That's, that's first I'm throwing that out there, right? You know, we've got this, but it's not altogether the be all and end all metric, okay? It's also very difficult to take something for 20 minutes and then extrapolate that and say I'd definitely be able to do that for 60 minutes right so I have I have questions about the validity of using the FTP as a metric with which to gauge improvement or training however zone one and it's not my zone one okay I am not the person that's made this up this is a three zone split that is based on metabolic parameters zone one at the top of zone one you've hit what is called the two millimole point so at rest Crocker sat there he's probably got about a millimole of lactate circulating in his blood so even though he's perfectly aerobic um, perfectly formed and uh, and uh, perfectly capable of uh, huge athletic endurance um, feats um, he still produces lactate arrest as you start exercise that will often drop a bit and and maybe at about 100 watts he'd probably only be trickling out about 0.8 i'd be done at 100 watts <laughs> done 100 watts yeah yeah he's gone past max and he's now in super maximal efforts but you start to process the lactate, therefore often drops in the in the blood uh, to a lower number than what it was at, at rest. And then it gradually increases as your effort increases. And zone, top of what, zone one, or the top of the aerobic area is defined when you pass the two millimole point. 
Pass 2 millimoles into zone 2 is the point where you accommodate lactate. Okay, from there to threshold, which is between the 2 and 4 millimole point, you can actually bounce around in that area. You're making more lactate, more of it is um, visibly appearing in the bloodstream, but you can stay there for good amounts of time. You can drop down to zone 1, go back up into zone 2. So zone 2 is, is called the lactate accommodation zone, because you're, you're basically... In and out of effort, your body is processing the lactate. It reuses it as a fuel. Don't think lactate is this bad thing. It is a temporary byproduct, and therefore you recycle it. Then you get to zone three, which is above threshold, which means that the body will go into the lactate accumulation zone. So in zone three, you aren't in there for very long. You have a limited time. When somebody says, I was in zone three for an hour, like well there's something wrong with your heart monitor or you were doing something different to how you defined your zones because you don't stay in zone three for an hour because physiologically you don't build up lactate and keep holding it there for an hour okay so they've probably got to rethink their zones the percentage of ftp in relation to um zone one is uh, I would I would have to I would have to write this down and, and double check my numbers. But if I said somebody's FTP was around say 300 watts, then I would say that their um, zone one was probably up to and including about 220 ish, something like that. Okay, um, but it's. It's effectively moving away from FTP as the way of defining, you know, it's almost like define the set physiological points. And I'm sorry, but we've got a horrendous um, hailstorm here in, uh, in, uh, in North Devon. So if you hear some noises happening, this is, uh, we're, we're being battered by a uh, Friday evening hailstorm. Um, doesn't last long here. We don't have much of that and it'll be gone. But it's kind of funny really to take known physiological points of which FTP is just near the top of zone two. Okay, it's just before you go into zone three. Okay, and then try and take those three zones and then go back again. What I would do is look at what happens at your maximum uh, heart rate, then take 80% of that, and that would be the top of your zone one, and then see what wattage you can do and stay in or around the 60 to 80% heart rate. But a lot of training does not happen at a specific point. So when Simon talks about what sort of percentage of FTP are we talking about on the bike, um, there's a huge range. And as I was talking to um, talking to Nick earlier about training, you know, when you're doing base training, and, and a lot of training is base training, you aren't always trying to hit a desired power output. You don't just get on and say, right, I've got to do 200 watts because that's what my legs need to do. There's a lot of just get on and ride your bike. There may be certain blocks that you need to do. And this is getting really heavy with hail now. It's coming down like golf balls. Um, it may be that what you have to do is actually do certain blocks of effort. But the rest of the time, you're effectively switching off. You're not actually always trying to keep pushing, 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 pushing. And if you look at, at the moment, 
search on Google, Cycling Weekly, Peter Sagan's training, and you look at his sort of, you know, it's winter training. It's not, you know, it's not uh, out of the realms of what you've seen other people um, talk about and actually list. Is that there's blocks of just riding and then there's certain... Um, specifics, specifics which are still not up at FTP. They're way off of FTP. They're on about it being um, something, uh, something in the range of about sort of sixty percent of FTP. So we're talking quite modest. If you take sixty percent of that, okay, that's only like one hundred and eighty to two hundred watts. So it's quite small amounts of effort. The rest of the time, tap, 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 and having having seen. Uh, elite athletes work on producing aerobic benefits a lot of times they're working at what's quite modest power output for them but it ends up being about 40 percent of their maximum for, for you know for longer sessions maybe up to 50 percent but for most people listening to this they're probably for most their threshold is probably somewhere depending on whether they're male or female their threshold may be anything from 180 to 240 if they're female males they may be somewhere from 250 to 320 okay there's people above that and there's there's uh, friends and and people i coach that's above that but as a generalization so the numbers are so individual that when you start trying to pinpoint a precise output that's not actually how to train it's that there's a range and the range might be that some of the time in zone one, uh, you might be working at, I don't know, 160 to 180 watts, but you're not actually looking at that number because you look at 160, 180, you're going to say that's not high enough. I need to do 200. So there's a lot of times where you shouldn't be gauging your FTP pace and running or gauging your power on the bike. You should literally just do it in zone one. And that would start as low at, as 55% of maximum heart rate. So let's say, Simon, that might be, you know, biking at 110, 120 heart rate, but might be as high for you as 80% of max, which might be something up to, say, 145, 150. I'm just guessing that's where your zones are. But, you know, that means you could be at 110, you could be at 145. But neither of those are superior to one another because it depends on the duration what is the point of the session? Have you got to make the most of that session? Or are you trying to effectively train but leave a bit more for a session that follows it? Not all training can be done at this so-called sweet spot. There has to be a lot more variability. And when you try and pick out a certain number, what you notice is we're not an engine. We can't work on a number. And the interesting thing about Peter Sagan stuff is that it was all over the place, but there was very little that was talking about very high intensity. It was a lot more modest stuff, some overgeared work, some blocks at 200, 220 watts when you work it back, or very roughly when you know the kind of numbers he'd produce, quite modest stuff, and then lots of time just tapping the pedals. And it's not meant to be a smokescreen, it's actually saying to a lot of amateur athletes, you've got to do an awful lot more steady state, easy training and do only enough work. Because a recent study by, it was, I can't remember the lead author, but I know there was a guy, David Bentley from Canada, who was part of this team. And they took athletes doing 10 hours of training. They gave them two lots of intervals per week, which was 
seven lots of five minutes, so 35 minutes of intervals, times two meant they did an hour and 10 of intervals out of a 10 hour week. So that's 10%. So 10% of the week was hard work. The rest was absolutely categorically defined as zone one. So they did 90% zone one and they did 10% intervals and they still got improvements over a four week block. Okay. If you try and do everything, pushing every zone one session up, not doing those intervals, but doing more intervals and ending up doing, you know, four lots of intervals, loads of stuff just near the threshold, a bit more hard work, then the random hilly session that takes you out of zone, you end up then producing too much effort. And I think your training pace has to be somewhere in zone one. What that is, <coughs> sorry, joint cough there. Um, what that is in terms of effort will actually define, you know, depend on where you are right now, middle of winter. I know people that in the summer could produce 200 watts, uh, 141 heart rate. Now they're taking nine on 157. So they're still training, but physiologically they cannot produce the same work. Therefore they can't do the same routes. Otherwise they they blow themselves up by going into zone two, but they do realize that there's more to come in the spring when their system will allow them to still be in zone one, but suddenly notice they're doing more work. I mean, I think I think that's the th Simon has has asked a good question about that. A lot of people that I I speak to, I guess Joe might might well be the same as well. I think they want a specific number. Yes, they, yeah, they want. Yeah. I want to know that it is my my percentage F my FTP percentage. I want it to be you know. 55 55.6% yeah you know there is no specific number for it you can you can work out a range can't you from yeah. from say yeah. here to here um that's where you you need to be and i think the sweet spot training now like i said joe joe being the coach would be far more um up to date with with it than than myself but the sweet spot kind of training i don't really understand because they're, they're holding you at in you know a very very specific band um, of of training, um, and like Joe said, the body reacts in different ways at different times, reacts at different ways at different points of the season. Yeah. yeah. So the sweet spot training has to be, surely has to be done in training uh, in season. Yeah, and it depends, uh, depends on what point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It depends on what, and also, sweet spot sort of says you know there's one particular place, and what yeah. you realise is there's loads of different places to stimulate the body. But what I'm saying is there's a small percentage of that that has to be hard work. Lots of people want to do flip it on its head and do far more regular intervals and hard efforts and turn a base session into a race and turn what was going to be steady into hard because they felt good on that day. And actually, that Sagan thing was good because what you saw was there was a huge amount of keep it varied, keep it deliberate, keep a lot of it low intensity, but put in some work so you have something specific to work on. But there's not a huge amount of just maximal efforts all the time and very little time to train. The time in the bank cannot be superseded by trying to find a special place. Go here, you can do in 40 minutes what somebody's going to take three hours. Three hours yes, rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolute it. rubbish. Otherwise, that is how it would work. And the likes of the Frooms and the Brownleys and the Chrissy Wellingtons and the Mo Farrers and all of that lot wouldn't be training 20, 25, 30, 35 hours because they'd say, we've sussed it, we can do it in an hour. So I think we have to be very careful with amateur athletes that they don't try and say, I just haven't got enough time to train. How do I basically squeeze a, uh, a quart into a pint pot? 
And you say, well, whatever time you've got, you know, at most 20% of that is hard work. And the rest of it, and this is my real bugbear, the rest of it has to be easy. And if you start turning easy sessions into races, or it's hillier than you thought, or it ends up being, you know, a harder session at Swim Cub, because that's what it was today, you have to take that amount out of your allotted week. You cannot just keep adding in, oh yeah, but I was going to do this speed work and this and this and this. And before you know it, you're starting to put far too much stress through your body to attain a consistent pattern of development. Development is very, very slow. It only takes a tiny bit of hard effort. I can't remember who I was talking to. Oh yeah, it was somebody today. Go on, drop Johnny Brownlee in again. No, it wasn't. It was a client and he said... Even since a school kid, and he's a, he's a good athlete, he said, even as a school kid, I could do a tiny bit of training and get a huge adaptation. And other people would train and they couldn't do it. And now it doesn't take much training. He's like, wow, I can immediately see a process. It's like, yeah, you don't. If you've got the engine, sorry to go back to the engine, but if you've got the engine and you train it right, it will give you good results. There is no way to take either not enough time or a smaller engine than you'd ideally like and say, you know what, we can batter that into submission. We can make a, you know, a mini 850 into a Rolls-Royce V12. Okay. Yeah, that's very true. You can. What you have to do is say, I need to train smartly. And as Crocker said, you don't define a certain point. There's a huge range for zone one. That gives you flexibility to use different routes, different ways of doing things. But the problem with power is it can start to make every session get a little bit too much of a number crunch exercise in how much can you squeeze out and if somebody says oh yeah but it was sort of in zone one it either is or it isn't it's binary your body when it passes that two millimole point critically starts to go into an area of stress that's why all the research shows that the elite athletes keep in zone one for the majority of time and that's that's why i, I had a I read a tweet from ned bolting um um and if you if, if if you don't know who Ned Bolting is, Ned Ned helps with the commentary on ITV Four. Um, he doesn't help. Twitter. He holds the whole thing together. He holds court. I apologise, Ned. Yes. I've done you a disservice. But he put how liberating it was when he got on his bike and forgot his Garmin. He said how how liberating it was until he kind of did his ride, came back, and then realised he had a, no way of proving he'd done his ride. <laughs> yeah. But it was quite a nice way of putting it that that he felt liberated from the fact that uh, you know. He wasn't looking at the numbers. He wasn't obsessed with the numbers as well. So um, sometimes it is quite nice just to, you if you know you're going for a flat, easy ride, take the Garmin off. Yeah. Just go for a ride, just yeah. be numberless. And if you get if you get the time done and that works to your plan, there's only so much development that can come from these sessions. And I think, you know, percentage-wise, as I said, FTP, you can kind of work it out. And you can, you can certainly have zones and ranges, but there aren't really too many specific points because a lot of training is about relaxing and listening to your body. And there's a very interesting session when you say to somebody, you kind of warm up and then you get them to say, right, I want you to ride at X watts, but don't look. Just do what you think it is. Don't yeah. don't look, you know, stick it in your back pocket, turn it upside down. I don't want you to look at number, but I want you to do 10 minutes X watts and vary it. Okay, you know, I want you to do a 140, uh, a 210 and a 160. And they've got to try and feel what it's like. But that actually, now you've said it, that must, that would be quite interesting, wouldn't it, from a point of view? Because I, I bet I can tell you what 
around about 150 to 160 watts feels like. That's maximum for you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I'm done. I'm <laughs> off. Um, but then when I get up to about 200, I reckon that's when you start to struggle and then 220 and, you know, right on up to 380. Joe's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that would be an interesting... That'd be an interesting thing to do. Yeah, be, but, be quite, but what you quite notice good. is people that people that always are a bit on their case will often over-exert the number. Yeah. And I'd argue the whole point of occasionally doing stuff to pace is to say, right, I'm going to you know ride or run at this pace and get to feel, okay, this is what this feels like, and actually become attuned to a, a biofeedback exercise okay this is what this is what 160 feels like okay yeah yeah okay this is what 160 feels like if you get on your bike to sit indoors or outdoors and suddenly 160 feels like 200 then clearly your body's not functioning well and i had a great conversation with a guy who's a sportive rider today and he was like wow i took two days off my hrv has gone up it's really i've really you know, i've really benefited from that but Wow, Sunday felt like a breeze. And Monday, my eight-second bursts were some of the highest ones I'd done. And it was quite good to sort of see that his perception of what he was doing yeah. was more important than, oh, I've just managed to, you know, squeeze out even more watts for two hours. He just went out and did his base ride but said, didn't even feel like I'd done two hours. But then also, that also um, magnifies the fact that he's had two days off. So he hasn't come back after two days going... Right, I feel guilty that I've lost two days. He's yeah. gone, wow, that rest has given me yeah. this feeling. Yeah. And once you put those two together, mm. I guess you, you, you see a progress, I suppose. Yeah, because there's been lots of days leading up to that. But for somebody to say, I feel strong, it's far more important than somebody saying, I'm absolutely hanging. But, oh, do you know what? I just managed to do that ride at X Watts. And um, it's, uh, yeah, my, my train has just fallen apart. That's brilliant. I love that. Now this is this is my these are my ones that go out in the garden in, and I've just put them on and forgotten. Sorry, sorry, readers. That's a bit of a readers, listeners. Hi, granddad. <laughs> some irrelevant detail, but a good question, Simon. And it does throw up. You know, uh, it it throws up what I think is an important thing, which is numbers can be amazingly distracting to the process of learning how to do these sports. And we cannot see progress in every session. It's got to be, let your body work within the seasonal aspect. We're in the middle of winter. It's been dark now for, I don't know, already feels like four hours, but it's, it's probably only been about two. Um, but you can't fight that and you've got to go with that. And unless you've got an Ironman in January, most people just live with that and say, right, okay, I know my numbers aren't going to be as good. It's pointless to try and do something that I found easy in June because this is December and December is completely different to June. And I think finding a range of uh, of zones that work for you is really important because that way, on a good day, you can be near the top of that range, but you're not trying. It just happens to go that way. But on a day when you are a bit tired, but you can still train, you're at the lower end and you just accept, okay, I'm not hitting the normal wattage, but I think wattage shouldn't be something that you're constantly staring at. It's nothing worse than somebody running along and every time they look at their watch, oh, is that quick enough? No, not quite quick enough. What happens? They go a bit faster. Instead of going, I'm just going to feel my body. What does it feel like it can do today? And when you get back, you go, okay, that was job done. Okay, if there are set intervals to do, fair enough. But those 
really are the icing on the cake. And I would argue most people do not get the cake right in the first place. They're too eager or they're not managed well enough to get that cake built. Because if you build a good aerobic cake, you're going to be going hot guns anyway. You're going to be noticing you've got some of the best numbers and you haven't yet done any speed work. So I think it's really important to make sure that, you know, we get this into context and we don't get distracted by the Garmin's and the training peak data and the Strava data and stuff and, and not get back to the enjoy what you're doing get outdoors or do stuff indoors that you enjoy but don't start obsessing over numbers because it will eventually end up being a process that just feels like a job and for very few is it actually a job and some of the best trainers I know keep it incredibly simple and they say I just do this session I do three by eight at this level that tells me where I'm at and that's it and there's no Jiggery pokery, it's a very simple thing. Yeah. I think that's most of it, even like you said, for the pros. The pros just want something number one, repeatability, isn't it? Yeah. Um <coughs> once once you can repeat a test, you normally get the same results or you get the better results, or you get the worst results. You know where you're too. So yeah, that magic number, that magic percentage, that yeah. magic yeah. area, that the there isn't anything specific enough for you to go, that's what you need to do. Like you mm -hmm. said, you know, do that for ten minutes. And that's my training done. I yeah. can race. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready yeah. to go. So, good question. I'm going to have a go at the name. You can have a go at the name. I reckon it's Louis Alcantarilla. Alcantarilla, yeah, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. give me that. Okay, it's a question about time trialing. And um, he said, hey, Joe, I'm, I commented on your Instagram post, re the shims for Plasma 5. Um, and what he means is these uh, angled... Um, wedges that go below the pads that your forearms sit on and it says how much for 10 or 15 degrees how long will they take blah, blah, blah. I have a plasma RC uh, and using all the stock components I don't really um, have the the funds to mess around too much you know um, with, uh, with 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 other things um, so what he's talking about is there's now these 3d printed wedges that allow you to angle the cups and Many, I'm not going to say all people, some people find it difficult. Many people are finding that the forearms tilted upwards so that the hands are maybe at chin level or even at nose level, that on aero bars produces a, a better shape. It produces um, often a, um, actually quite a stable position as long as the person isn't too far out. Their elbows have to be quite often right underneath their shoulders as opposed to trying to stretch and have your arms up that's a really weird position to be in yes there are still those with flat arms some people just prefer flat arms but quite a few are doing angled if you have angled ski poles but your pads are still flat the problem is and you can do this on a desk now if you angle your arm on a desk upwards and notice that hold on a minute it's now not flat with the desk it's sitting on the last two centimeters of the desk it then cuts into your arm so we get these wedges and some brands like uh, argon do it they're um uh pillars that you mount the actual um forearm cups on their pillars actually rotate slightly so you can tilt the angle there's a few others that do that but some don't and therefore they get these uh, 3d printed uh, wedges so it's um it's quite good to see these 3d printed things that are made it might be worth putting another picture on yeah of, yeah uh, on your instagram yeah. or on 
onto the website or a link to. Yeah, I'll, con website, I'll contact yeah. Uh, uh, Louis. Louis direct. But it's one of these things we're going to see more and more into cycling, which is um, sort of bespoke uh, 3D. Sort well, of 3D printing now has just opened up a something that would take quite a while to manufacture is now taking what under an hour to manufacture a piece or two pieces or six yeah. pieces yeah. or eight pieces yeah. um and i think we will see that more in the bike trade we will yeah. see more um 3d made yeah items yeah. number one for saving of material yeah um number two speed of which it can be turned around yeah um even even down to bike frames yeah. you know obviously i think there's there's quite a fair bit of waste but also the some of the 3d printing that i've seen is f absolutely fantastic and you, you're trying to work out thinking how how have they gone internal with it yeah, as well yeah, yeah. On, on, so but that that takes a lot of money yeah. and a lot of time so and what we're going to get is we're going to get localized bit like flooding when, <laughs> <laughs> a bit like when you had you know your uh, your local uh, let's say i don't know locksmith or um haberdashery or no or ironmonger if you wanted yeah, it made yeah. you went to them and they made it bespoke what you'll get is a, a place within each maybe town or each place that is a 3d printing expert and then somebody that has the plans for that particular component can just say oh yeah we can we can get it made for you they'll send it from you know wherever the particular bike company is they'll send it to your local 3d people they print it so there's no charge for moving the product because it's made local to you you can pick it up because it's made bespoke nearby and the only thing that's transmitted is bits not atoms the atoms by the product itself is made at sort of source yeah, where you want yeah. it and i've read a lot about this bits and atoms things and it's going that way where you will have more digital processes sent through the um internet but the the component can be made, you know, you could have a bike shop that can make you, oh yeah, we can do that, you know, that particular part. Obviously, we're still at the early stages of 3D printing, but the plans of how to send it can be sent all over the world. Yeah. And well, there's nothing to say that there needs to be someone there. Does no. it? it could be the case of you, you take a trip down to your 3D printer, you type in a specific code, oh yeah, we made that for you last night, out it drops out of a vendor machine. Yes. You know, yeah. There's, yeah. there's nothing, the, the, the possibilities are endless with it. For the bike trade, I think it would be absolutely brilliant for that because the, the, what sometimes um, general public and, and obviously our customers don't realise is some of it's only one season. You know, they make that particular part or that particular bike for one season. Most of the parts, 95% of the parts on the bike, you can get replacements for. Yeah. But there's that odd bit that you yeah. can't. Like like gear hangers, like a particular brand of bottle cage or, yeah. a, or a, yeah, bolt yeah. Or a bolt or a wedge. And, I yeah. mean, we, we've had it before with um, end caps for wheels. Mm. You know, if that configuration has changed, free hub bodies yeah. that have been made once, we've had to get three or four machines turned, machines kind of proper engineering places, metal mm. turning places, mm. to make us these three hub bodies. And they cost a fortune to make. If you can make that 3D, yeah. then it takes that element of, someone having to change a whole machine run mm. just to make these mm. two or three bits. Mm. So for the bike industry especially, 3D printing is massive. You know, it, it, it will change the industry for, for the better. Right.
this is number seven. We're almost there. We're getting there. We're getting there. This is from Daniel Ray. And he says, hello, Joe and Martin. I recently found your podcast via a friend and have found them extremely intuitive and entertaining. Normally two words that don't go together when my name's mentioned. No, agreed. Uh, they fill many an hour while driving in the van at work. I'm currently working my way through the history on iTunes. They have history. Wow. I have been cycling for three years now, mostly club rides, sportives. I have never followed a training plan as such, just riding my bike, pushing when I felt good and relaxing when tired. I am now just about hanging on to the club's fast group, 20 mile an hour average. I'm very keen to compete next year in local time trials. I'm also keen to do The Beast in Yorkshire and the Tour Cambridge with the aim of qualifying. I recently bought myself a single speed running of 48.17 for training over the winter with the idea that I'd have no choice but to push hard to keep up with the group up hills and push a high cadence on flat thinking this would be good training. Although I enjoy the single speed, I tried it fixed, which I never wish to do on the road again, and believe it has improved my climbing. I now realise this was perhaps the wrong way to go about training. I have since taken your podcast advice and I'm trying to train to heart rate, but find on a single speed to achieve the low heart rates, I'm riding at a very low cadence of 70 to 75 RPM, whereas on the summer bike, I would normally be at 85 to 90. So my question is this, when training in zone one, does cadence matter if ever? I don't want to use my other bike through winter as bottom bracket bearings seem to last only a few hundred miles when used in wet conditions. Also, should the, should the months leading up to Christmas be purely zone one? P.S. I've tried several times to post a five-star review on iTunes, but it doesn't seem to post. I'll keep trying. Many thanks. Many thanks for the advice you give. Keep up the great work. And that was from Daniel Ray. So... I kind of get what he's trying to do, but the problem with particularly in the winter, if you're trying to go off with a group ride that's doing 20 mile an hour and he's on about, you know, going up hills and stuff, you think on a single speed, 20 mile an hour, three years into riding. On a 48.17 On a 48.17, well. that's a big ask. And I think what you want to do is, is utilise the great thing about, yeah, a, a, you know, not just a, a fixed gear, but a single speed bike is, well, there's the hill. You've got 4817, you've got to get up it. And there'll be an optimum hill that's just about right. Now, you can do that on a bike just saying, right, I'm not going to go any easier than, you know, 53, I don't know, 5319. I will go up that hill on 5319 because I know I can. But it's got to be at the right part of the year for that to be not overreaching and going, blimey, I can't do that. So I think utilize your single speed. You might need to adapt the gear and you might need to um, look at your choice because to do 20 mile an hour average, if you're hanging onto the fast group, that doesn't sound like you're training. You know, that sounds like you're doing a pretty hard tempo come two hour to three hour thrashing it, which actually is not going to be the ideal way to train. You'd be better dropping down a group, tapping along, finding that you still sit there under low cadence work uphill which is fine because we've talked about this low cadence work around 60 rpm that's fine and then at other times you'll be spinning as per you would on your summer bike around 85 95 um i don't think you've got it wrong you might have just timed it a bit wrong and i think in doing in doing the i'll keep up with the group it might just be that you're keeping up. There may be people in there that are breathing out of one nostril and hardly exerting, and you're going flat out. You've just raced for two and a half to three hours, and they've done base training. And that means you're effectively icing your cake already, and they haven't even started to push the pedals hard. So I think watch that keeping up with the fastest group, because 
20 mile an hour average might not be far off your no, I'm not going to say far off your time trial, but it might not be a lot of difference to your time trial. So you're going out and trying to push yourself as fast as possible. It won't be exactly your time trial pace because what you do for 10 miles, you don't go out and hang on. But you could be at the back of the group, basically raising your speed by the fact you're sat in a group, but also going hell for leather to try and keep going. And as we said before, there's only so much of that you need to do. And if you're trying to go for sportifs and time trials, you need a fair amount of steady endurance. You need a little bit of harder work, but not really till the sort of, I would say, March to April to May, because most people time trials kick off, you know, mid late April into May. So if you start even at the beginning of March, you've still got often six weeks till you hit your first time trial for most people. And I'd say you probably want to start mid late March, and then you've got a month's worth of just starting to do some harder work. Then you can start to do your time trials. Pick sportives that challenge you, but just watch you're not trying to bite more than you can actually chew and end up just hammering yourself and finding that, I don't know, three years in, you're just already battering yourself every time you ride with that group. And you're effectively doing a race every weekend. Other people are training and you're racing. They'll be improving through February, March, April, May. You will have already hit the hit the decks um, i'm i'm a massive fan of single sprints um i can say that because we have probably an area around here where we could get probably do 60 odd mile loops yeah you know which is relatively flat um so i am a huge fan when it comes to single speeds i'm also a fan that they're like you mentioned um is it dan um, mentioned that it's the maintenance on them is next to nothing as well. So um, the downside with them is, and, and I, I've made the mistake as well. I, I kind of, I bought a training bike in inverted commas. So mud guards, single speed um, with what we call a flip-flop rear wheel. So you can have it as a traditional fixie. Yeah. Or you can have it as a single speed, but with a free wheel. Now we've got a couple of hills around here that aren't, very steep they're not very long so it's fine you kind of you can bully your way up and i think i was running the same as um the same as as daniel was yeah um but there's one here that's relatively steep it's about 20 19 20 percent and it goes on a little bit flattens off and then kicks up again up to about 22 now apart from the fact that the fear that my kneecaps were just going to pop off um once i got to the top of that hill i was pretty much fit for you were fit for nothing. You know, you'd kind yeah. of blown your, your legs out of the water. You'd, you'd, you'd manhandled this thing up. I almost twisted the bars off the front, you know, trying to push so hard. Um, and I kind of got home and just thought, well, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't think it was adding anything to what I wanted to achieve as far as training went, yeah. apart from the fact it was convenient and it saved me a bit of money because I didn't want to do the maintenance on it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I kept it for the winter and, and used it on most of the flat riding and it's it, they're beautiful to ride on the, on the flat um you know they, they hardly make a noise mm. but it was just a flat kind of training bike um i then changed the way and, and joe and i had a chat you know quite a few years ago about doing kind of high cadence i'm not i think everybody's got a natural cadence i haven't got a high cadence um i mine when I ride the bike, anywhere between 85, 90, sometimes 95 as far as cadence goes. Um, I wouldn't say I push anything more than that, but it's probably mostly around 90. Um, 
But I started to do some faster spinning stuff, so I started to do 95 to 100, but really relatively low power. Um, just as training and you notice to start off with your heart rate is quite high yes, yes. Um, when, you, when you're not used to it but then all of a sudden you start to fat burn a bit more um, you know and it did come on but then the downside is is you still have to have that resistance to be able to to do your like Joe says you know your big gear work you know where you do your 60 cadence and when I went to try and do that I found it quite difficult to do because yeah. I hadn't done enough of it so it was quite a fine balancing yeah. act because he, he was saying about you know um, when in, when training is when does cadence matter if ever yes it does because the mass of your legs if you overspin for a required workload then and that would be you know being under geared on a, um, a fixie or being in the wrong gear on a, uh, a standard bike and needing to go down a gear if you overspin Unless that's the point of the exercise to get your nervous system firing quicker. If you overspin, all that happens is your heart rate goes up, but you haven't really done any more work. If you slow the cadence down and take it to its logical end, which is you go up an incline, you push quite a heavy gear, but you're only at 60 revs, and you can notice you're way in zone one, but you're doing quite a bit of work. So yes, cadence absolutely does affect where you are. Hence why if somebody's doing a benchmark test um, indoors, you try to get them to do it in the same gear. Because if they change gear between tests, the variance in heart rate can actually be more about the fact they're spinning more this time than they were last time. Or last time, actually, they were on a different rear wheel, which allowed them to be in a different gear, which meant that they were pedaling differently. So there's a big interplay between cadence and what your um, heart rate is. And I think, sort of reiterating what I was saying, you know, fixies are, are, are good. Um, there's a place for them. And there's certainly an art to using them effectively to train. But you've got to be training you. The bike itself isn't right or wrong. It's making sure that the, the, the routes and the groups that you train with are such that it's giving you the desired outcome, which goes back to this whole, you know, 90-10 sort of theory that most of the time you've got to be steady state. If you're, um, in your um, own words, just about hanging on to the club's fast group, that doesn't sound to me like you're in zone one. It sounds like, you know, we'd probably look at a you know, two and a half hour, three hour ride and I reckon you've got an hour in zone two. Therefore, Sunday afternoon, you're pretty spent. You're certainly more spent than what I would want to be after a three hour ride. And you're racing. You can almost say that the moment you go above zone one, you are now racing. You are in the lactate accommodation zone, which isn't the training zone. It's now starting to do work that's meant to be harder than okay. If it's okay, you're in zone one. And you're gonna to have to pick the groups and pick your methodology of, do you just wanna keep up? Or do you wanna train accordingly to allow your body to get better? Because if they're the faster group, and you know they are the fast group that they may some of them have only been cycling for three years some of them could be cycling for 23 years and they've just got that ability to ride at 20 mile an hour sometimes people in you know even in winter starting to ride some really good kit in order to get the rolling resistance the drag get everything optimized to be able to ride as fast as possible and my argument would be you know use your um single speed to get time in the bank, to keep the bike simple and easy to, uh, to, to sort of maintain,
but don't try and punch above your weight because it's just going to be too hard work and um, you know we want people to enjoy it there's no problem with enjoyment and effective training being in the same sentence yeah don't be afraid <laughs> don't be afraid don't, don't be, be afraid. afraid to enjoy it and if somebody's faster in you know in uh, in the fast group right now you know they may be going flat out and actually they're at the depth but they're just hanging on and we all know training groups where you know people cling on to somebody's wheel but when they race against the clock in the summer they're minutes apart and it just shows that one's training smart in the winter and the other's smashing themselves to try and keep their ego aloft that they can just about keep up and training isn't about just about keeping up it's saying what is your desired output and are you in that zone or are you overexerting? Um, good question i like that this one's for you because i think you're going to know this okay this is from nick anderson when is the best time to eat a mince pie is it that golden 20 minutes after a run? Perhaps if you add a dollop of vanilla ice cream, it works as a protein top-up as well? Question mark. Yes. Discuss. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, anytime's a good time to eat mince pies, uh, especially with a dollop of cream or clotted cream or... Yeah, not ice cream. Uh, ice cream. No, I'm with ice cream. I'm with ice cream, right. especially if it's warm, especially the mince pies warm. But my question to that be... Uh, to that be, to that be, right. where are you from? Where are you from, B? Um, my repost to that would be <laughs> just one <laughs> question mark. Just one question mark. Okay, I, I, I'm a big fan of mince pies. Are you big fan? So I reckon twenty minute window, perfect. Dollop of ice cream when it's warm, perfect. Or cream, clotted cream from Devon, perfect. Probably two. <laughs> then but it's got to be a decent run. Mm, yeah. When was what, the last time you went for a run? Do you know what? It, it's shameful. I ran from the shop to, to where we sat. And I thought, God, my knees are hurt. <laughs> I was like, all right, granddad. And, that, and that's all of 200 metres. Oh, it's not even that, is it? So, 150. I will, I'll tell you what. I will do... Uh, let's go 10k. I'll do a 10k run. Okay, at some point we will. At right, some point. Job done. Question nine, before we get into Martin's training and it's all about him. Well, uh, again, now, no, no, no. Again. Now I'm giving blood, eating mince pies and running 10k. Yeah. Merry right. Christmas. This is from Lee Ager. Ager? Ager, I would go Ager. Yeah. Yeah. I discovered you on the Time Trial <laughs> podcast and was very interested in your approach to training, especially... The recent surge in HIT programs almost year round. I'm a cyclist starting my base training following a few weeks very light to recover from the season. I usually adopt quite the opposite and loosely follow the trainer road sweet spot base training plan. However, this season I'm going to attempt to give your approach a try. My first races are in May, two very hilly TTs, 70k in the northeast of England, roughly lasting two hours. Uh, my ideal, my ideal idea is to generally work on my aerobic zone for a few months, then gradually build in the zone to work closer to the race. Um, so long sweet spot, roughly. However, I have two questions. Does the polarised approach still work as effectively for athletes with reduced training time compared to the pros? I'm looking at up to 15 hours a week if required. Part two. What zone three workouts would you include in the base period? I assume as we are avoiding zone two that we will include a small amount of work at threshold or VO2. So maybe once a week, say three by 
three to four by four minutes of VO2. What about the intensity of these? Zone three but easier than later in the season. The charts you display show the elite still doing zone three work pretty much all year round. I had not had time to listen to all the podcasts, so if the topic of zone three sessions in the base winter has been discussed, I'd be grateful if you could suggest an episode number. Thanks for your advice, Lee. So let's go back specifically, because he's asking some very detailed questions here. Um, so he says, does polarized approach work when you reduce training time compared to the pros? I'm looking at 15 hours. Well, blimey, I'd say, I mean, I coach a lot of athletes and only the Ironman athletes exceed 15 hours in a week. Polarised. Explain. Right? Oh, polarised. Explain. Okay, polarised is the approach whereby you aren't just randomly landing anywhere between just above, you know, just above uh, starting to go out the front door right up to maximum. You have a predominant zone one which means anywhere from 55% of heart rate max to 80%. So that's your zone one. Up to including some zone two and some zone three. But typically it's very upper zone two into zone three. So it's deliberately hard work. So that would be an example of something like, um, as uh, as uh, Lee talked about, you know, something like four by four minutes at VO2, which would actually be something like... Um, you know, 10k pace for a runner, maybe a little bit harder than threshold pace for a cyclist. So firm efforts, but he's talking about, you know, 16 minutes or something like that. Now, if you're doing 15 hours, you know, don't think you're not doing a lot of training because that's still a fairly feisty amount. This works, this has worked in research right away down to the six to the eight hour point. This works with people that I work with that train six, eight, 10, 12 hours. It's not a pro only approach. The only difference with pros is that the numbers are bigger. It still works. And most of the time it works on a 90, 10 basis for um, non-elites because typically Pros are in that, you know, 18 to 35 age band. Many of the people doing endurance sports, and you don't give your age, but many people doing endurance sports are much more like, you know, 35, 45, 55. So their capacity to recover and their ability in their lifestyle to recover is much, much less. So 90-10 works because there's only so much icing of the cake you can do anyway before you just end up being great at intervals but never really producing it at the end of the day. Now, it does dis depend on your historical background. Some people can do, you know, a couple of regular intervals. But I was speaking with, with somebody yesterday and they were sort of saying... Oh, yeah, it wasn't Johnny Bandler, was it? Oh, no! I was speaking to this person who's a very effective athlete, he's been doing it for years, time trial, now into triathlon, blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, I do this sort of interval thing. And it's not like it's a, a religious calling every Thursday that he's got to do. Just occasionally, when he's ready to do it, he does it. But if he's tired, he doesn't do it. It's not fixed. And if you're not well and you're overstretched with work and not getting enough sleep, etc., etc., the last thing you do is go, yeah, but I've got to do me four by four, at which point, the pros have to do it. That is what their whole day is built around. Whatever you do um, for Workly, there's a huge amount of your day that is built around making sure you get to work. You've got your, you know, your your pencil, your ruler, your rubber, whatever it is you take to work. Okay. It's not a school. <laughs> it's work. Oh, it might I'm be just, a teacher. It might be a teacher. teacher. It might be I'll teacher. Take it back. Well, there you go. He said he was in a van. So, so, 
the pros do that intensity because you know that's what they've got to do to 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 be at the very best but i think the amateur sees that as being oh there's the gold dust up at the top no that's the that's the tiny little flakes on top of your cake you've got to build the cake so the polarized approach absolutely works and training studies training manipulation and retrospective studies on amateurs at very modest levels of training show that it works and the biggest i use a technical term cock up that people ever do is when they go into zone two too often because that totally mucks up the balance of absorption and they don't get what they think they're going to get so they try and beat the system by pushing into zone two that stresses their body that's still for them taking them from that one to two millimole range of lactate up to the two to four. And that's the same for the elites. The difference is they've got to do a hell of a lot of work to get above two millimoles. They're still on this planet Earth. They are still physiologically stressed by going to the two plus millimole level. Hence, where that happens is different between amateur and professional. But the fact that it happens is a key physiological stressor. So it absolutely works because the differences might be they do higher volume, but that line that you surpass when you go from zone one to zone two is still physiologically relevant to them. Okay, so that's the first part. Part two, what zone three workouts would you include? Um, uh, intensity of these um, zone three, but easier than later in the season. So yes, you're going to get a little bit less work done in order to get some work done and i don't think you even need to be up at zone three i think for the off season there's a lot of people that get a buzz near to maybe at or maybe just above threshold but there's got to be a reason already to need to do effort i think people that think they're missing out on it have got to look around to people that don't do any speed work they just build their base and then they start doing speed work when it becomes relevant because you're not needing to pull your finger out till May. So even if you start doing intervals in March, you've still got March, April and into May before you hit your first race. OK, that eight weeks is going to bring your form on like anything. So if you can build your base and get fitter and fitter, fitter you're going to get the March a just to get out of zone one and go into zone two is going to take a heck of a lot of work. B, you're going to be feisty and notice that you can really push it. And C, the effectiveness with which you absorb it is going to be great because your body's going to be really looking forward to it. The biggest mistake is people, typically in January, when do I start speed work? And it's like, blimey, if you start speed work in January, you're going to have to need to be peaking pretty soon it only takes four to six weeks to bring that on and i know the pros do it constantly the difference is is they often have firstly a body that can take it because it's often a lot younger there's not been that many retrospective studies done on older athletes but what you tend to find is they talk about doing less and less, less quality less work and a lot more about making sure that they just do a little bit of it but it's very potent high intensity work is very potent and when people think they're missing out because they're not doing their weekly speed work they don't realize that 
it's not that effective because it can only be done for so long. You can drag yourself through a session that just shows you can do it if you really have to, but that's not what we're on about. We're on about looking at your May peak and going, you know what, if I do eight weeks of development, both using local TTs and an interval session, in eight weeks I can bring myself on big time, but I've still got we're doing this in December, you still got Dan, uh, December through to January, through to February, through to March. Then, not only have you moved out of winter, we've got lighter nights and you're feeling fitter anyway, you then add the interval work on top. I think there is too much emphasis on people trying to do high intensity work. I would use your hard work to be maybe some 50, 60 RPM low cadence work to get sort of strong, but not have high heart rates maybe doing some kind of conditioning work at home to, relating to core, relating to squats, relating to simple strength work, but don't be too quick in trying to immediately add zone three, thinking you've got to do it year round. I think that percentage difference for the pros is different. And I think the difference is, is that their body doesn't even really notice they do it. Knowing what they do, they're still, they're working at a hard level, but it's still often very controlled because for them to be at, at threshold for an hour over the week spread into different intervals is a piece of cake because that's the only hard work they're doing. So they're not doing loads of smashing it up. The majority of what they do when you look at it is a big volume. Why do they do a big volume if it could all be done with short high intensities? Because the big volume is the most important part. The high intensity is good for pace judgment. It's certainly good to get you ready to race, but you can't get ready to race now in December and January for something that you're aiming to peak in May. You're not even going to make it to May and you've already blown up. It is he's quite interested and, and Lee, um, when Joe started to uh, badger me uh, many moons ago about, you know, um, starting to do the zone one stuff. Um, I, I do a lot of riding with Joe. I do a lot of riding with, with Nick, the, 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 the gent that owns the shop that I work with. He's not a gent. He's not a gent, no. Um, but we, we rode together doing this you know zone one and i just thought oh, i can't wait it was it was boring uh, at, at any stretch of the imagination it was it was boring that was the conversation i think yeah it, it might well have been so literally it was three months and i was just thinking oh, God, you know and i was absolutely bursting to do the fast stuff or the hard stuff at the end of those those kind of almost three months and then when you start doing it it's leaps and bounds. That's the thing, isn't it? Especially yeah. if you haven't trained, if you haven't structured a, a training session or structured a season or a winter based around the training, um, then it comes on so quick, you frighten yourself a little bit. So persevere with it. I must admit that I used to do like a little sneaky, not hard session, but like you said, when I felt like it, I thought, oh, I'm feeling all right, actually. We're just, I just wouldn't mind kicking on the pedals a little bit. Mm. And it was literally like a, four minute, five minute burst, mm, mm. you know, maybe I'd do one session with three, five minute bursts mm. in it. Um, just to, just, just to see how it felt. And then you kind of went, Oh yeah, it was hard, but oh, things have come on a bit. Yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, and then you kind of went, I, I was, I was excited to do maybe sneak another session in, but you kind of went, Oh, I feel a bit knackered or mm. I feel a bit tired, you know, Oh, I can't do it then. I can't do it. And then you forget about it. Then you go back doing too easy stuff. And then you, you sneak another little one in and go, Oh, yeah, that felt pretty good as well. But you don't. I don't purposely plan one in every week no. during the winter to do it. But if 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 a situation arises and I fancy having a little bit of a dig, and you kind of even if you get halfway through it and go, 
Oh, yeah, actually, I don't feel that clever. You can just back off it and just yeah, go back yeah. to your zone. Well, I like, I like the, eight, the eight second bursts, you know, because yeah. you get a real sense of, of pushing. You can see and wake up um, more muscle fibers because you start hitting the, you know, the higher powers. It's not a sprint, it's a firm acceleration, but it does get you to, you know, perhaps triple or more the heart rate, oh, sorry, the power. But because it's only 8 to 10 seconds, you don't actually get that much of a heart rate lift. But you break it up, 8 seconds on, you know, minute 52 off. So it's every 2 minutes you do an 8 second burst. You do that and you break it up quite nicely. Um, and I think that's the key really. You know, there's a theme here running through this lot, which is there's, there's some effectiveness to do with, with intervals. And it's fine to, you know, do some hard work from time to time. But... There's a lot of wasted effort for set for sessions that don't really glean anything more than to show that somebody can do it if they really need to. And, I, and I'd argue if you don't really need to do it, the best athletes are the good lazy ones because what they do is they do enough, but they only pull their finger out when they really need to. And it's not it's, it's never going to produce a lack of results. It actually means they're very good at keeping their powder dry and when it's relevant and when it's therefore near to the to the time to start pushing hard in any of the disciplines that you do as your sport then you start noticing you've already built this solid base and you feel strong and you and you've you've enjoyed the building process it hasn't been oh it's all about the purgatory if you can smash themselves every week it's like nah the the best trainers i've seen are very intuitive about listening to their body and they don't set a prescribed workload having looked at yes the retrospective data shows that there's interval work done um by the the, the pros but if you've got um let's say you know a 20 to 30 hour week to some degree you've already got a huge capacity to absorb training anyway therefore to throw in some you know five minute bursts on an incline or some speed work when running is relatively easy because a lot of the rest of the time you're going through the motions so there's a difference i think as to as to not the physiological constraints that um that amateurs have that pros don't but the pros have almost got a necessity to do some kind of um hard work because they could just do a lot of base and there's been some very effective athletes that have done lots and lots and lots of base and they've certainly um they've been very good at their at their job and they talk about quality work but That's a good question but like yeah but they they only do enough quality. I think there's there's no there's no secret like do enough quality you can get rid of the junk steady stuff. It's it's you know it's like you got you gotta put the time in the bank. And if you enjoy that and you got the right training mates and training routes and and training distractions like your your Zwifts and your treadmills and your group sessions and stuff, then that allows you to get a decent amount of time in the bank. But there's no way that. It's who can do the shortest, hardest, most gruesome sessions that's going to actually be the best person in the season. Time and time again, I see the observation that oh, I just went a bit too hard too soon and I was going too fast. And, and yeah, I, I just, when I got to the season, I was just already spent. You see them in training, they were smashing it up. But actually, when it came to racing, they'd already burnt their matches. And I've seen some great results from people that started 
with me that have gone through self-coaching, already they're showing improvements and they're showing increases in speed. And I'm like, this is totally against everyone else. Everyone else that's had their season is getting a bit slower. You've done it wrong before. You're now getting quicker, which shows that they must have hugely been overexerting. And the common complaint is they overexert into zone two. They kind of, you know, bit feisty, got to keep up with somebody, can't go that slow. I'm quicker than that. And it's like, look, if you slow down for a bit, eventually you'll speed up. And whoever it is, you've got to slow down to you, stay in zone one. You've got to slow down to go fast. Absolutely. How many times have you seen that written in articles and stuff? And I remember a chap recently said, oh, I watched something on the Kenyan runners. You know, they're used to running way under five minute mile per pace for our, for their uh, marathons. There they are out running at six and a half and seven minute miles, two minutes per mile slower. And that's their base training. But also with that as well for, for Lee's, the, the pros can break themselves down and be put back together. Mm. Unfortunately, we don't have that. Maybe some people do have that capacity, but I mean, I certainly don't have that time. You know, I can't just take a day off work or take no, a week no. off work to, because, you know, I'm, I'm a bit tired or yeah. I want to do a heavy block of training. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, nine times out of ten, we, us mere mortals, normally go to work, come home, do the training. Or we're at work, yeah. do training in the lunchtime, come home. Or we get up early. So you, don't, you don't have the work. capacity to recover. You don't right. have the same capacity to recover. I remember when, when I was a, a student and after, after being a student and um, kind of just did some dossy sort of part-time jobs for a little while. And it was amazing being able to, you know, ride into, uh, when I lived in, uh, near to Bath, ride into Bath, go swimming with people in the morning, ride back again, come back, have breakfast, go off to bed, go to sleep for a couple of hours, get up. Go off and go off and bike ride, or go running later in the day. Get maybe two sessions done in the day, sometimes three. But it felt easy because you were getting naps. There was nothing else to do but to do that, and it was like that's how the pros do it. Their job is to get that that training done. So of course, there's the capacity to do some hard work. Um, so brilliant questions. Thank you very much, listeners. We, you know, we appreciate them because making them up's hard. <laughs> Getting real questions, yeah. as I know from doing magazine work for years, trying to make them up is really hard work. Having people send them in, it's really good because there's themes and there's scenarios. By, that... by the way, we don't make them up and then pretend someone sent them in. Yeah, yeah. We, that, it's been brilliant that we've had this yeah. a bit of a delay because we, we, we picked up nine and there's still some more for next time. So we very much appreciate questions. Every review and rating at iTunes is really uh, useful for us. It's good to get the, uh, get the, uh, the stars up there. Uh, contact us with your questions. You can click um, contact at uh, coachdoabeer.com or you can tweet uh, either Coach Beer or Safeport Racing. Uh, follow both of us, i.e. Safeport Racing. Is it at Safeport Racing or at SFITB? Just search it. It's out there, isn't it? At Safeport Racing. At Safeport Racing, yeah. Um, Instagram pics for little uh, little insider pics and stuff. Keep a lookout on that. Um, Facebook, etc., etc., etc. Thank you. We will get this out. This will be in your iTunes or whatever system you use to listen to this podcast. It'll be in within the next seven days. So just shy of Christmas. And we will be returning in the new year. Thank you very much for listening over 2017. We will try and get as many done as we can, but it is always a... Um, it's always a challenge to get it done to find the right time but it's always good that things pass under the bridge and allow us to build up some uh, ideas and some things that we're always talking about it but actually to get the time to sit down and to do this in um, our 
own free time after um, work days is, is quite a challenge. So we will try and do it once a month as much as we can in 2018. But we wish you a uh, fabulous Christmas, should you actually partake in Christmas or whatever you do around the time of the winter solstice. Have a have a recharge. If you're in the uh, Southern Hemisphere, enjoy your racing. We are very, very, very um, envious of the, uh, the, the, the summer weather you will probably be having and the fact you're racing. And we will be back in 2018. Happy Christmas to all. Stay safe.